He is risen. risen Amen. You would have thought that it was Easter. (laughs) But we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about that, uh, his resurrection. And uh, just reflecting over the message that um, we're going to take a look at this. You know, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves and we're to demonstrate that love to the lost. But sometimes, in our fallen nature, sometimes you can get a little bit angry at um, um, the unsaved. And um, it's almost, you got to make sure that it's sanctified. So we usually just refer to that as being imprecatory, you know, um, because there are passages in the Old Testament, Lord, take the teeth right out of their mouth, you know, knock them out. But um, the words that Christ has for the scribes, Pharisees, as he calls them hypocrites, he calls them uh, a brood of vipers, he calls them uh, whited sepulchers, um, just like graves full of just bones, Um, Jesus really comes down hard on them. Well, some of it we will see as it will begin today. And as we come to the Gospel of Matthew, and as what I've said for all these, uh, now it's been months, but uh, that we've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, that um, uh, Matthew has put together his, his Gospel in such a way that is so powerful in its logic. And its approach. Um, I, su- I suppose it would be fair to say uh, polemical, although there's a lot of people that don't really seem to refer to it that way. But it's his polemic or his um, uh, argument, his defense of who Christ is and what he is trying to accomplish. And so um, uh, it's just amazing. And we come to a passage here uh, this morning where. We see things building up. Uh, we've seen this all the way through. Uh, uh, Matthew has some of the, the largest sections of the um, uh, direct words of the Lord Jesus found in any of the Gospels. Uh, Sermon on the Mount being quite large. Um, the uh, passage uh, that we've just recently gone through that talks about uh, the miracles that he did and then his teaching and they're beginning to be upset with him and then even to the point that there are those that are wondering, is this the one? Could he be the promised one? Which only upset the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites that much more. And uh, so there is this uh, verse in chapter 12, verse 14, that as it builds up to this, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Now, that's not the first negative comment that we have that Matthew makes concerning the scribes and the Pharisees and their attitude towards Christ. But then, uh, as what we saw last week as time went on and the multitudes were following him and making them, uh, asking that question in verse 23, when it says, could this be the Son of God? And then he talks about how that the scribes and Pharisees attribute everything that he's doing to Beelzebub, the Lord of, Li- or the Lord of Flies, and how that um, he is bringing so much, uh, they're bringing um, accusations to him that he does these mighty works by the power of Satan. And Jesus then confronts that. And he says, wait a minute. 
any, um, any kingdom divided against itself will fall. But notice that if you're going to accuse me of casting out demons in the name of Satan, then who do your sons cast them out? And he took the argument masterfully and turned it back on them. Ah, can't do that. And they only become that much more. And then we see verse 33 in chapter 12. Neither make the good tree and its good fruit, or else make the tree bad and fruit bad. For of a tree is known by its fruit. And then he looks at them and says, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the mouth of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so he's really putting the, the pressure on them. And we see that as it builds up to this point in the, um, in the Gospel of Matthew. And then um, they are trying to catch him. We've already been told that in uh, verse um, uh, chapter 12, verse 14. In um, Matthew, let me go back just a little bit further. To, if we go to uh, chapter 11, um, there was the question by John the Baptist. Are you the promised one? And that didn't come from unbelief. It came from a sense of um, things aren't quite going the way that I thought they were going to go. And so there was a lot of questions being set out there. John the Baptist, a sincere question. Jesus takes it as a sincere question. And he answered and said unto them, verse 4 of chapter 11, Tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. Uh, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And they went out and they told John that. And uh, So John's question was, are you the promised one? Privately, uh, sent his disciples over there. And he says, yes, I am the promised one. The scriptures verify that I am the promised one. Uh, the prophecies are being fulfilled that I am the promised one. And he takes that. Well, Jesus has done all of these sign miracles and uh, you know, up to this particular point of whether it be casting out demons and the like. And he has proven by what he has done that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. And then we have another question. Uh, this question uh, begins at verse... Um, 38 of chapter 12. And because we're celebrating the Lord's table, we're going to take a look. I think I'm going to limit it just to this, to this question and the response that Jesus gives. So we'll uh, take a look at this, um, at this question in a twofold way. But verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying... This was about their words would be justified, words would be condemned... And that, so they, we got a question. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now this one is basically the question has gone to a command. The question in their mind is, we don't believe you. And so now it's becoming quite pointed. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. A nice way of putting it is, do a sign. Prove who you are. And I see the response is just so bad 
um, and their response and all of what Jesus has done. Because, see, John the Baptist asked the question, are you the promised one? And he said, yeah, take a look. I, I meet all the qualities. They're saying, not enough. It is simply not enough. We want more. And they come off now with a command because we still question whether you really are the Messiah. This isn't going to stop because, you know, as we saw in verse 39, the scripture was read this morning. And he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. And no sign will be given to it except, and then it's a sign of Jonah. Turn with me back to chapter 16. Same gospel, Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4. Then the Pharisees, now this was after Jesus feeding the 4,000. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him. See, we already heard they're out to nailing. And they came testing him and asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. That's really what they're asking. All this other stuff that you're doing, not enough. So is something big. This may be reminiscent of the, uh, of the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2 and verse 31. Change the moon to blood. Then we'll believe. You see, even if Jesus would have done that, they would not have believed because that wouldn't be enough because the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. And he doesn't because he has no spiritual discernment. They are bent to not believing and therefore they would have rejected him. Nothing that Jesus was doing was going to sway them. So how did Jesus respond? Verse 2 of chapter 16. And he answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red and the morning will be foul weather today. For the, sun, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the sign of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except... And his response the same way as in chapter 12. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. So you see, this is all the way back in chapter 12. It's going to come up again. And they're trying to nail him. It doesn't make any difference what Jesus says or does. They will not receive him. I like, the song of the, I like the words of the contemporary song that if you would not have loved me first, I would not still love you or I would not have come to love you. Because the natural mind and the natural state of a sinner is, I don't like Christ, I don't want Christ, and I want nothing of him. But look at what he does in all of these apologetics, you know, arguments to try and bring him in. They still, it'll never be enough except for the sign of Jonah. Now, in our passage here today, um, it, we have a little bit more of an explanation of exactly what that is. And I want to approach this uh, passage of Scripture in two ways. It's very simple. Their request for a sign. And secondly, 
Jesus' response to their request. First of all, their request for a sign. It's in verse 38. Notice it wasn't all the scribes and Pharisees, but it was a goodly number of them, and it's only going to grow. They said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, those of us that are parents and, um, you know, sometimes when your kids just are so bold and uh, they say, I want. And you just want to say, well, can you explain to me why I have to be worried about your wants? You know, I will give your needs. I may choose to do your wants, but, you know, your want is not something that is going to make or break my day, you know, kind of thing when you are uh, over them. But Jesus, you know, they, they come off and they say, we want a sign from you. They wanted something big. They wanted something bigger than what he had been doing. Well, he's been casting out demons. He's been, um, you know, healing the sick and so forth. And then he, he identifies them when he says, an adulterous and wicked generation. They wanted, they were, it, it has to do with, they were craving his destruction, not the, his verification or his confirmation. One more miracle, and uh, you know, I just have a little bit of unbelief, a little bit more doubt. I need just a little bit more. When we see chapter 16, it never goes away. Um, they wanted to catch him in his own. So what this request is a clear demonstration is the th- the major unbelief that is going on in the heart and in the mind and the soul of the Pharisees and the scribes. They are lost. That's also, by the way, this passage passage, and then what we'll look at next Lord's Day in the morning about uh, this thing with the unclean spirit and then the thing with the mom and the brothers. If you notice chapter 13, if you have a study Bible, it'll be in a heading. But it says, and on the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea and a great multitude gathered together uh, to him so that he got into a boat. He sat and the whole multitude stood on shore and he spoke to he spoke many things to them. But now we're introduced to the parables, the parables that where he will say it's introduced in this passage, but it's also now going to be for the whole another major section in the gospel of Matthew. On parables, and the parable is like a a short story that to convey spiritual truth. But they will end up with, "He that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit of God says," because he's going to conceal the truth to those that don't really want it, to those that are coming to the gospel with demands. Nothing in my hands I bring. There's nothing that you can demand, uh, uh, and these proofs and that sort of thing. But he says, I will give you one. So now let's take a very, very quick, uh, a quick look and um, maybe a little bit more of some understanding about this thing of Jesus' response. So in verse 39 it says, And he answered and said unto them, and he identifies them, which obviously would have only upset him that much more, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Well, they're the ones that just asked for it. So there's no question on who, is, who are the evil and who are the wicked and who are the adulterous? Now, they're not thinking in 
probably a sensual uh, kind of sense of adultery. They're thinking of spiritual adultery, much of what Israel was well known for in the Old Testament. So it's an adulterous generation seeking after a sign. And he's saying, no sign's going to be given it, except there is one. And the sign of Jonah, the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in, uh, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he gives them, uh, adds some oomph to that, when he says, And the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation, and the men of Nineveh, a bunch of pagans, they're going to judge you. And they're going to condemn you because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Now that's going to set them off. First of all, he just raised Gentiles over the spiritual leaders, the conservative spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. That was enough to get their attention. But you know, uh, repetition is used of um, the Holy Spirit and is used in typical Hebrew fashion of argumentation. Repetition to prove a point. And so he goes again. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and they will condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So now he's got another Gentile, but now he's going to switch it around. And he's going to say the, the, the Gentiles came to Solomon, second king of the, uh, of the United Kingdom. Or, well, technically third, I guess. Uh, but the last one. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. He wanted to make clear his Jewishness was not brought into question. So he says, there's a greater one than Jonah. And there's a greater one in Solomon that is here. And their message and the results of their ministry are going to rise up and judge this wicked and adulterous generation. Well, there are several points that I want to make on this particular passage just before we go to the Lord's table. Number one, and, and I do this because, well, I guess one reason is, is because I went uh, to a secular school. I went to a secular college. I have a lot of secular friends. And um, this is one thing that oftentimes they will bring up. That, uh, well, Jonah is not real story of a man getting swallowed by a fish. And uh, they usually say a whale. That's a, a misnomer. It was not a whale. Um, uh, because there are no whales in the, the body of water uh, that uh, this all took place. And, um, and then sometimes people will say, well, there's no fish big enough to do that except a, um, a whale shark. Well, whale sharks tend to eat microbes and not big items. And so that's not going to work. And they say, so this fish just doesn't exist today. I jokingly will respond and says, of course it does. It's called a largemouth bass. But, uh, you know, if, um, if you ever catch a largemouth bass big enough to swallow a man, you better keep it because no one is going to believe you and they will call you a, a, a fisherman. That'll call, they'll call that a fisherman's lie. But the text is quite clear. It was a prepared fish. It doesn't say that it was a fish that was, you know, that still exists today. 
It could have been a, a fish that God prepared and just created a miracle and it was a special fish, one in the world, and that was ever it. It could have been a fish that exists and God made a miracle and it just grew um, and so forth. He says, yeah, but that's a miracle and I don't believe in miracles. Well, I'm so sorry, but I do. And um, I read the text and I believe the Bible to be the God's word. That's where I am a presuppositionalist in my, in my apologetic. That um, the Bible says that happened. And then they say, yeah, but. Always be careful when, you know, critics of the Bible go, yeah, but. And they'll say, yeah, but. You don't have to take that as a literal story. It could be just a metaphor, a hyperbole, something special. Something that, you know, it's not really true, but it conveys truth. Because as what Jesus is going to apply here, this is what is called typical predictive uh, prophecy. That is Old Testament history or event uh, foreshadowing the coming of Christ. And uh, they just say, but it doesn't have to be real. Well, the first point I want to make is Jesus seemed to think that it was real. And if Jesus thought it was real and it wasn't, then Jesus was either... Uh, buffaloed or he was deceived by the Old Testament or Jesus was correct. Because notice what he says that um, uh, the sign of Jonah, for Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. He was. It's a statement of fact. So those that doubt the revealed word of God are part of the adulterous, wicked generation that's wanting a sign. And every one of those scribes and Pharisees should have taken that as a literal event. But we have people today that still say, well, that wasn't literal. Um, no, I will just clearly say that Jesus took this literally, and therefore so should we, that there really was a prophet named Jonah, and in his rebellion he was thrown overboard, he almost drowned when he's in the seaweeds. And then the fish was his deliverance. The sign was. Now, this is the thing too. It's easy to preach Jonah. And we all get wrapped up in the fish story. That we tend to forget what the fish represents. Jonah was almost dead. And usually you can take some liberal um, theologians and they'll say, well, he's in the seaweed, and this is in chapter 2, and he's in the seaweed in the belly of the fish. No, it seems the way that you would read this is he's in the seaweed, he's drowning, God has a prepared fish, and the fish is the form of deliverance from his death. Just like the ark was the form of deliverance for all the animals and of Noah. Yeah, but we don't think that was a worldwide flood. Well, I do because the Bible declares it to be so. So, the means of deliverance is the main thrust of the story of the ark, of the fish. It was a prepared fish so that God sent and that, that was his means of salvation. So, the sign is... The means of salvation for those who are dying. That what Christ came to do is to seek and to save that which was lost. And so now we have this, um, this idea that it was a true story. And he goes on. And he says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And by the way, 
Um, I don't know that we can take time to do this, but if you turn back to Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17, um, that's exactly what it says. Three days and three nights in the, the, the great fish's belly. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, we're confronted with another problem that the liberals and those that do not take the scriptures seriously, that they say, well, right here is an error. Because we look at the fact that this is um, uh, concerning his, his death and his burial. This is the, the, the doctrine of the resurrection and the burial and resurrection. How long was Jesus in the earth? Well, uh, the, the, the story concerning uh, Jonah, the sign of Jonah was it would be three days and three nights. And then to watch people in their response. Well, how do you get three days and three nights from Friday to Sunday morning? Um, and it just goes um, uh, on and on. Now, in this statement, three days and three nights, it, it, uh, if you're going to be so wooden, are we saying that it has to be 72 hours, three full days, three full 24-hour days? Um, no. Uh, we can just say that yesterday I was at Awana. I was here several hours, but I wasn't here all those times, and that it happened. on, And so it can be included within those times. Uh, it can be considered, a part can be considered the whole. Jewish uh, reckoning of time concerning days is, um, well, Jesus died on a day, and then that night, that night became the beginning of the next day, and on and on it goes. So if he was crucified on Friday, that's a day, then you got Saturday, and then Sunday, depending upon if he was in the grave just a little bit since, you know, but that day really began on Saturday night. And so you could even get three days on that. The problem is, the text says, the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. How do you get three nights? And there are those, and we're coming into the Easter season, and there will be those that will say several things. They'll deny that the Bible is God's inerrant word. We Christians are... Just very naive that um, Jesus really wasn't the one promised because he wasn't three days and three nights. Well, there are several ways of reckoning all of this. And, then, and this is this. There are those that are very highly qualified that will say con concerning a, a uh, Hebrew uh, idiomatic pronunciation... That every time that you say, uh, say day, it automatically means that whole 24-hour time of, of uh, day and night. That's what some would say. And so he was in there three days, and uh, the, the, the nights are just automatically included. And the reason why Jesus said three days was because that's what the book of Jonah says. And it's only a stronger argument that um, we can see that um, he was um, um, saying this was the sign of Jonah. Now that's how some people want to reconcile it. Usually those people are the ones that, are, um, that want to have the crucifixion on Friday. And then Jesus rising um, uh, on Sunday, on the first day of the week. 
Now, we all believe that, um, you know, or the one reason why that he was taken down off the cross and he was buried and he wasn't fully anointed with all the uh, ointments. Why? Because they wanted to get him off because the next day was going to be the Sabbath. And so we say, well, the Sabbath is a Saturday. But it's also during the time of Passover. And Jewish reckoning concerning Passover was also a day concerning um, you know, um, a Sabbath day. It was a holy day, a day not for work, a day for worship. And it was recognized as a Sabbath day. So then the question is, was the Sabbath day that is in reference, is it Saturday or could it be Friday? So that he died on Thursday. You get Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and before the rising of the sun, we got our three days, and Jesus came out of the tomb. Then you have got Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. Look at what you got. Three days, three nights. But that seems to fly in the face of the traditional Good Friday. Then the question then comes, well, which is right? Well, you know, that's when it gets really confusing because sometimes... Um, Many people don't realize that then uh, Passover would have been on that Friday. And that's why he was crucified on Thursday. And then you got to go all the way back to then do your reckoning from the triumphal entry. Now, I am not going to take time to go through all of the arguments, to go through all the... Now, there are others who just say, then you got to have three full days. And so what they're going to do is, is they're going to say there's a crucifixion on Wednesday. In the midst of all of that, let me just say, that's not the thrust of this passage, okay? So that doesn't make that much difference, but it is a passage where liberals and those that have a real problem with the resurrection of Christ, um, that, that's, these are some of the things that they bring up. I'm only going to mention one argument that um, is very interesting. Go to Matthew chapter 20, um, 28. Now, I don't know how many of you know Greek. There, we have several in our congregation. And this one, I had just actually um, uh, came across, and I went back and reconfirmed and reconfirmed. Matthew 28, verse 1. This is what it says. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn. Okay, so it doesn't really say, when did he rise? You know, they're saying... Uh, remember the, the whole story about uh, the, the uh, soldiers. They came by night and stole his body. Some say that means he resurrected before sun, sunrise. Okay, but those guys were telling a lie to begin with. So I don't know if I want to verify the resurrection time by a bunch of liars. But it, there may be some strength in that argument. But this is the point. Chapter 28, verse 1 says, Now after the Sabbath... That's singular, right? Go check the Greek. It's plural. Very interesting. So after the Sabbaths, as the first day of the week began to... So we know that happened to be on the uh, first day of the week was Sunday. So now the question is, there could be Greek references, and then that would have meant, apparently... Jesus died on Thursday, not Friday. 
That's one reason why I don't have never really spent a lot of time having first uh, Good Friday services. That's all sideline. The fact of the matter is, the first day of the week came. The deliverance was real. The day of his crucifixion, I'm not going to downplay its importance. What day it was on, that was not important. The events on that day, eternally important. So now what we have is, the sign of the prophet Jonah, for as the Jonah was in the fish's belly three days, three nights, so must also the Son of Man be. What is the greatest sign that will fully verify everything that Jesus has said? Well, some may just need a, a demon kicked out. So others might need a, the blind seeing or the deaf hearing. Or even the raising of Lazarus from the dead, raising of the dead. Those are all big signs. But you don't want to know what seals the deal. It's the resurrection of Christ. He was crucified. Good Friday, whatever. Uh, I, you know, uh, that's not going to sway me one way or another. By all of that conversation there, let me just say, no matter what the liberals say, we have an answer for them. That is fully justifiable and believed by really smart people. So that's not the issue. The issue is it happened and he rose as he said. And it was confirmed by, his, by the 500. And then you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. and what? So when they said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. You're going to get it. On the third day, I am going to come out of the grave. And they just, you know, they weren't buying it, this whole thing. And now we have then the judgment statements. When he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment of this generation and condemn it. You see, they would have believed that Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. He sealed the deal. He said, you see, and they're going to judge you because you're not believing this and you won't believe the resurrection. And not only that, we've got the Sheba comes and there's a greater one here than Solomon. There's a greater one here than Jonah. And that would be me. And then he's going to go on and we'll pick this up next week. But let me just say... In the name of the greater one, we gather around a table today. We gather here. This is my body, which is broken for you. It was nailed to the cross. And I died. And I was buried. This is the cup of the new covenant. Of my life's blood that was shed for your sins, that your sins are forgiven. Drink ye of it. And for, all, for as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we show the Lord's death until he come. And he can only come if he was raised from the dead. And if he did not raise from the dead, then we are among all men most miserable.
But when I look at misery in this world, I see it's the people who don't believe in that resurrection. They rejected the sign of Jonah. And they have forgotten that they're still in their sins. That's one reason, it's not the only reason, but one reason why the Lord's table today are for those not of a wicked and adulterous generation, but it's to those that believe, that have accepted the sign of Jonah. They understand that he was buried for three days and that he arose just as he said. He confirmed it and he did that because they wanted to see something really that was great that would sway. The resurrection of our blessed Savior, dearly beloved, it is the focal point, the preaching of the gospel. We offer a risen Savior. The Muslims can preach. The um, other false religions can preach, but their saviors are all dead. Ours came out of the grave after he was um, falsely accused and murdered, and he's alive, and he's coming again. I trust you know him, and we have an ordinance today to remind us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your children would say, hallelujah, what a savior. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Father, may we take our cues from him on believing the Old Testament and its historical accuracy. Not to go with the evil generation that wants to show how corrupt, but to go with one that agrees with the Son of God. Father, we thank you that a greater one than Jonah came. A greater one than Solomon came. The greatest one, the Son of God, came. God incarnate. We worship you through him today. And we are reminded of that sacrifice in eating his body and drinking his blood. Father, enable your children to worship in spirit and in truth and the celebration of this ordinance. In Jesus' name, amen.